Uh, right, so we're coming to the, this is the last uh, of our sessions uh, in 1 Peter. We've, been, we've called it Compelled uh, because we've considered the fact that um, a group of people, uh, I guess like some of us here today, but maybe not all of us, uh, have come to terms in the early days of the church, first, uh, first few decades after Jesus uh, has been present with this world, uh, they've been compelled by the message. They've heard who Jesus is. They've he- heard the claims of who Jesus is. And then they've he- recognized that those claims uh, of the fact that Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the one who has been promised throughout the history of God's people. Uh, and they've heard it from people who were eyewitnesses. Peter was one of those eyewitnesses. And Peter is writing this letter to them now to encourage them uh, and to encourage them to keep on going to, in spite of the unfolding persecution, that they would have confidence in that risen Jesus Christ, that he was still present with them in the power of the Holy Spirit as he promised, and that they would continue to grow and flourish as as believers individually and together when they keep their eyes focused on Jesus Christ. So we come to the end now, and in a strange way, like most, uh, like most letters, there's a, a kind of a conclusion, there's a, uh, the equivalent in some senses uh, to uh, yours faithfully, but we're going to see that this is so much more. So if we can have that up on the screen, what we're going to see is that at the end, Peter writes, he, we looked at verse 12 last week, verse 13 onwards, he writes, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So we're going to consider those last two verses. They seem almost as though at the end of a letter which has been packed with so much content, so much amazing instruction, so much clarity of what it means to be a believer living in the world day by day, how we should live, how we should live appropriately, that Peter ends it in this way. And yet what we also see, and we're going to recognize this, is that there are a number of connections which he is making right at the end of this letter. He's joining together in an amazing way. Look at what he sees, he says. We're going to look at this in a little bit more detail uh, in a moment. She who is in Babylon, he's talking about a church there. Uh, And in a sense, if he's talking, talking about a church at the end of the letter, isn't it remarkable that he's connecting it almost like two bookends with the first verses of the letter? In the first verses, he recognizes churches. I'll remind ourselves again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exile scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What does that mean? In each of those regions, there are in the same way groups of people, congregations, gatherings of God's people. And Peter is as concerned that these congregations and gatherings of God's people are flourishing and growing and developing. So much so that he has sent this letter 1,500 miles, it is, from where it was written and sent from to the recipients, around about 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles is still 
a long way by land and sea today, isn't it? It's still a long way. 1,500 miles in the ancient world was a huge distance. That's massive commitment that Peter is showing. He is really concerned. He's, and he's concerned with the content. And a sense, in a sense, if the letter traveled 1,500 miles in the ancient world, it's also traveled 2,000 centuries to us today. And he's essentially saying to us today, here is, here is a, a structure, here is a pattern of how to live your Christian life in this world. Now we recognize, and we've recognized on a number of steps through this letter, that the world that we now live in doesn't look like the world that they lived in. And yet at the same time, there are underlying principles of how to live. If I can leave you with anything at the end of this uh, this series on this letter, it would be to encourage you to go back and to reconsider this letter, to look at the detail, to, to kind of take it, we've taken it in bigger chunks, take it in smaller chunks, really think about it, ponder on it. What does it mean to live in this way today? How does that work? Because Peter is desperately concerned that believers in Jesus Christ are not the kind of people who have a head knowledge, which is dangerous alone if it's only a head knowledge, or have words that say things but don't translate into living. That's what this letter is all about. It's about knowing, it's about saying, and it's about doing It's about being compelled in the whole of our life to live consistently as believers in Jesus Christ. That's a great challenge, isn't it? It's a great challenge today as it was a great challenge then. And Peter is really concerned. He's saying, churches, I want you to live like this. Not because I'm telling you, but because Jesus has shaped this life for those who love and trust in Him. It's a pattern for all Christian life. But the other thing that I guess is countercultural for the world is this. He is linking together churches. He's joining them together. He's creating a, a network of mutual concern, mutual love, mutual relationship. I guess our natural tendency is even when we have common ground in this world, we have competition as our mindset. I find that fascinating. Think about the various uh, organizations or interest groups that you might have outside of your church life. Think about sports groups. Well, I guess sports, by very definition, is competitive, isn't it? Uh, but, but it runs deeper than just the com- competition on the field, doesn't it? It runs into uh, our, our running club or our cycling club or whatever it might be. It's better. You know, look at, look at the way they behave. Not, not right to do that. Not right to live like that. And yet what Peter is saying is one of the principles of relationship in God's family 
is to know that we are not in a competitive situation with each other. We are together. We are one body. We are united. I find it fascinating that the very beginning of the letter and the very end of the letter, Peter is talking about different church congregations. And in a sense, he's talking about them as one. So the first thing that we see is he's, he's talking about a church. And he's saying this church is joined with you. Which church is he talking about? Well, she who is in Babylon. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? That's a really interesting phrase. She who is in Babylon. What does he mean? I guess to some extent you really are going to be helped by having some history of the Bible, knowing how God's people have been cared for and loved by the Father over the centuries, over the millennia. But in another remarkable way, Peter is linking the beginning and the end. Again, he talks about, in the first verse, he talks about exiles. You are, you're exiles. Well, if you were walking around in Jewish sandals in the first century, that would just spark up all sorts of immediate thoughts in your minds. When were my people last exiles? <laughs> Babylon. Babylon was the place where we were last in exile. What was Babylon like? It was the place where we were taken from Jerusalem and we were no longer living in Jerusalem. We were exiles in Babylon and we were taken away to be slaves. We were separated from that land which was ours. And Peter is, in a sense, he's recreating that imagery in people's minds. You were exiles, he says. You are exiles, he says, in verse 1. And now he says, you're the exiles. Well, that's Babylon, isn't it? And he's saying, but the church in Babylon, she, talking about the church, a church in Babylon. What does he mean? Well, Peter is he's creating this mindset of what it's like to belong to the church in the world. Babylon. What is it? Babylon in the Bible is the enduring picture, the continuous picture from the exile of God's people right the way through to Revelation. It is the continuing picture of worldly governance and opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Babylon. Babylon in the Old Testament was a place Incidentally, that Babylon, by now, is pretty much a derelict ruin. One of the Roman Caesars returned to capture Babylon. Uh, and when he arrived, he was disappointed. Because actually, he was, he'd gone to capture just a wasteland of devastation. There was, relatively speaking... There was nothing there. So Peter isn't talking literally about the church in Babylon. He's talking about a church in a place which continues to represent worldly structure, worldly power, which is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where does that sound like if you've got any kind of history knowledge? Where does that sound like? What was the center of the world for Peter at this moment in time? It was Rome. 
Rome is the place which epitomizes everything of structure and power and worldly organization which is militating itself against the message of Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying the church in Rome or Babylon in code sends you greetings. Isn't that an amazing thought? She who is in Babylon sends you her greetings. There are a few things that just jump out at that point. Firstly is this. In the very place where there is the strongest representation of worldly structure and worldly opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a church. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? Shouldn't you at that moment in time, working and wondering how far is the gospel going to, be pro- going to progress, how far is this message of Jesus going to reach in the world, you would be amazed. There's a church in the middle of the place where everything is standing against God. Rome. If you want to take, if you like, a a big picture of the book of Acts, that is the amazing outcome of the book of Acts. If If you look at the book of Acts, it's surprising. It's following really the journeys and the work of of Peter and Paul uh, and the work of the gospel. Uh, And yet, remarkably, it doesn't tell us anything about the end of their life. Because that's not the important bit. It's not about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's about the progress of the gospel. And the progress of the gospel in the book of Acts ends up with Paul in Rome preaching to those who are in authority and establishing believers in the very heart of the Roman capital. That is just amazing news, isn't it? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about Jesus? It tells us this, that the promise of Jesus, that nothing would stand against the progress of his church, is absolutely something that we can believe in. I guess we live, don't we, in fearful days in lots of ways. The news over these past few days has been frightening in lots of ways, hasn't it? Just just last week, Rachel was talking to uh, one of the guys that she works with. She's due to go next week on holiday to Tunisia. You think... Who could have ever foreseen? So I, I know the political arguments about we could have and all of the rest of it, but what a shock, what a horror. What an amazingly terrifying event has taken place. And yet what we see, according to this, that in the very places where the gospel is most oppressed, in the very places where it seems impossible for the gospel to even see light of day, there will be gospel progress. China. Kind of place where, when I grew up as a young child, China was the bamboo curtain 
It was the place where if the Iron Curtain was a difficult place to get the gospel into, then the Bamboo Curtain was even more difficult. What have we seen over the past decade or so? We have seen an explosion in the Christian church in China. That's remarkable. It's remarkable because it should remind us again that God has promised that His Word will triumph, His Word will flourish, and it will be marked with this. It will not be marked by religious zealots of power. It will be marked by suffering servants. That's what this letter says. The gospel does not come in power, it comes in weakness. The gospel does not come with military force as we confess the sins of our forefathers down the centuries who have believed that to be the case. The gospel comes with brokenness. The gospel comes with the shedding of tears and the shedding of blood by those who proclaim the gospel, not by those who wield a sword of the gospel, but rather those who have the sword wielded against them. And yet the word of God still remains firm. That is how the gospel progresses. And in a sense, if you were in one of these places, Pontus or Galatia, and you would hear this and you would say, in Rome, there's a church. What else does it tell us? You couldn't get much difference, really, than Pontus and, and Rome. But Peter says, you know what, we're one. And that's going to involve all sorts of differences. Do you know the biggest church in the world is uh, the Yoida Full Gospel Church in Korea? Do you know how many members? 700,000 members of one church. They, haven't, they don't have one service for 700,000 members. I don't even know quite how they work out how you've got 700,000 members, but it's a big church. They have a t- their tradition, they have a time of prayer. We, we, everybody prays. It's interesting, different to what we do. How do you do that with a congregation of 16,000 people? You ring a bell when the, when the praying is to start and then you ring a bell when praying's to finish. That is just so different to us, isn't it? Just so different to us. And some of us might think, do you know what, I'm not really sure whether I would want to go to a church where you ring a bell and you start praying and ring a bell when it stops. But what Peter is saying is, you over there in Pontus, the church in Rome, who are going to be so different to you, they send you their greetings. We're one. We're together. Why, why are we together? Peter tells us we're together because we're chosen together with you. That's the foundation. That's the work of God that is going on. How is it that there is a church flourishing in a secular, well, Buddhism is strong, but a technologically driven country like South Korea, where it would seem just impossible for the gospel to flourish? 
Why does the gospel flourish in China? (laughs) Because they're chosen by God. Because God has purposed that his people will flourish in spite of opposition. So we're joined churches. The other things he reminds us is that we are joined people. I think this is really important for us today. We, we love the idea of being joined, don't we? We have all sorts of ways to pretend that we're joined. Pretend that we're joined. We have technological ways to pretend that we're joined. It seems as though over the past decade, there has been more startup companies with a mechanism to pretend that we're joined. And yet what Peter is talking about here is you're really joined. Look at what he says. Who else sends their greeting? Mark. So does my son, Mark. Mark is an interesting character. And that description is interesting because he's not Peter's son. (laughs) He's not Peter's son, but Peter is so tied in relationship to this younger man who's probably in his middle ages by now, not not all that young now, but he's tied to him. He calls him son. That's the kind of relationship that he has. That's the kind of care that he has. It's the kind of heart that he has. Mark has actually, in his earlier days, he's had a bit of a checkered history in terms of Christian work. He was actually the very reason why Paul and Barnabas broke up and went their separate ways. Because they weren't happy with the attitude that the other was showing towards Mark. It sounds as if Paul was, was kind of more demanding, didn't have the patience and the encouragement of Barnabas. Didn't want to take him. He's a bit young, he's a bit immature, he's a bit wild, he doesn't... He doesn't kind of finish the jobs that he's supposed to. You know all the usual things that we complain about? And yet Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he stuck with him. And he stayed with him and he nurtured him. And here we see at the end of Peter's life, and possibly already by the end of Paul's life, both of them have talked about Mark in familial terms. They love him. They care for him. Paul, who said... I'm not taking him with me, says, please send Mark, (laughs) because he's good for me. Isn't that great? Isn't that great, that turnaround of relationship? Isn't it great that actually, I think probably what we see there is not so much Mark changing, we see Paul changing. I would suggest that's what we really see. Yeah, Mark will have grown up, but Barnabas stuck with him. How does Peter know him? He knows him from back in Jerusalem. Peter was in prison. And he was remarkably released. Doors swung open. He walked out of the prison. Where did he go? When this had dawned on him that he was free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying where he went I just think that that is just 
if we just stop and think about the whole of what's gone on, that's really quite emotional, I think. This young guy, where Peter turns up, it's quite an amusing story the way it's recounted in the Gospels. He knocks on the door, he's just been released from prison, and they're praying for him in this room, gathered together to pray for his, his, his freedom, his safety, that he'd be spiritually secured. And Rhoda comes to the door and she looks out of the door and she closes it again. She goes in to tell them that Peter's at the door. I'll tell you what, why not open the door and let him in? That would be a really good thing to do. So it's just a great little kind of cameo of the, the responses. And yet here we go, years and years and years later, here we've got Mark, still concerned about the gospel, still concerned to stand alongside Peter in a Roman jail, potentially by this time, facing opposition. You see, for Mark, it wasn't just a few minutes or a few years of enthusiasm. I think he's a great challenge to all of us. He's also a great encouragement to all of us. It wasn't just a kind of, you know, it was great when it was all kicking off with Jesus in Jerusalem. It was really amazing when I could be there and it was fantastic. But, you know, once, once Jesus had returned to heaven, then I, I just kind of, you know, well, I suppose since then I've, I've, I've started this company or I've done this job or I've, I've taken on this occupation, whatever it was, he is still going. He's still going. I want to encourage you. Mark is a testament to our Christian life. In this little sentence, Paul is saying, keep going. Mark sends you his greetings. It's not just some sort of, you know, by, oh, by the way, Mark mentioned, we were chatting, at, Mark is concerned as well. He loves you. And then he goes on to say, I want you to be joined people in this way. Greet one another with a kiss of love. It's one of those kind of, you know, that's kind of, straight away you've got, what do we do with this? How are we going to leave now, this afternoon? Well, Paul stood on the door. <laughs> it's not great. Don't like that beard. What is this all about? I think in simple terms it's this. There's all sorts of relationships that are expressed in this world. There's the click of a button which is like. There's the guy or girl who sits opposite you in work day in, day out that you probably get to know quite well. There's people within your family who perhaps your family is not the best of families. You get on, but you know, you could probably... It's the old saying goes, you can choose your friends, unlike your family, something like that. What Peter's saying here is he's saying this, I want you to consider and I want you to treat the church as though it is the very, very best of families. I want you to use all of the conventions that you would use in a family in your relationships with each other. Therefore, your greetings should not be formal greetings or nods. They should be the kind of appropriate greetings 
that you would relate to your family. That, with our sinful dispositions, is a great challenge, isn't it, for us to maintain. And yet what Peter is encouraging us to see is this. This is your family. This is your family. Now, for some, that might feel fearfully controlling. Let me say no family should ever be controlling. For some, it might be the very best news that you've ever heard. Because you might see that there is the potential for God's people to actually be what you've always missed. Let me just caveat that with one thing. The problem with portraying the church with that level of perfection is the fact that we are not perfected. And therefore we don't operate and behave appropriately all the time. But what it does say to me is there is going to come a day when the family of God is going to be perfected. And this really will be my family for all of eternity. That is exciting. It's exciting to think that I will spend time for all of eternity with people who won't wind me up and I won't wind them up. With people who won't frustrate me and I won't frustrate them. With people who won't let me down and I won't let them down. But there will be the perfected relationship that all of us really want. It's great news, isn't it? So let's start foretasting that kind of world now and accepting all of our failures as we go along. He finally concludes by saying, all of this is possible, finally, because you are joined in Christ. That's your final joining. You're joined as churches, you're joined as people, but you're joined finally in Christ. It's a kind of, it's used so often. The picture of, a, of spokes and a wheel. And the idea that if Christ is at the center of the wheel, the hub if you like, and each one of us are spokes, the closer that we are to Christ, by very definition, the closer we are to each other. That's how it works. We don't get closer to Christ by being closer to each other and creating some sort of uh, loving relationship that makes us all feel lovely and fuzzy and warm and excited. When we love Christ really richly and deeply, we will, by definition, love each other appropriately. Our, our, the spokes of our existence will get closer. And Peter says, quite simply, peace to all of you. And I suppose as this is being read out in those churches, 
there is not a blanket reading to all of those who are gathered there, is there? Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I think there is an implicit encouragement and there is an implicit warning in that final statement. There is an implicit encouragement that says, peace to all of you in Jesus Christ. But there is an implicit warning that peace only exists if you are in Christ. That same, if this message traveled 1,500 miles, it travels two millennia to us today, 2,000 years, the same message rings out. <laughs> peace is only found in Jesus Christ. Peter is picking up on one of the great principles of the great message of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Back in Isaiah, talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, how is he described? For to us, isn't it amazing, just... We read this as if it was written during the Christmas narrative, don't we? It was written 750 years earlier. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 750 years before Jesus Isaiah penned those words because it is in Jesus that there is peace. Peace with God. That's why the angels declared, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. Sometimes we get mixed up and we think the message of Jesus is a nice, cozy, gooey message where it's peace for everybody. In actual fact, it is the potential of peace with God. The potential of peace with God for all who hear. And it is the reality of peace with God for those who are in Christ. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? As we close this message of Peter, I think we have a clear indication that this message is speaking as much today as it did back then. It's how to live a life of peace before God because you have found peace in Jesus Christ. But it concludes by, in a sense, encouraging every person who is in one of those churches in Pontus or Galatia or any of the others. It's saying, effectively, it's saying, please, 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 do make sure that you are found in that category that has peace in Jesus. What a great close to this book.